Blog Talk Radio. Well, hello and good evening. Welcome to another edition of the Michael Calderon Show. I'm your host, Michael Calderon, and with me in the studio is my co-host, Joe Sanchez. Joe, how are you today? As always, a pleasure to be here. And listen, I've been getting some good reviews on your show, great reviews. That's wonderful. Yeah, we've gotten some great emails and uh, text messages uh, from uh, from various listeners, and uh, we're definitely getting good feedback on the show. And, you know, I'm excited about today's show. Um, we have a uh, special guest, Nelson Dennis. And, uh, you know, in, in reading his bio, and, and uh, he's on hold right now, we'll be connecting him momentarily, uh, in reading his bio, um, he has done so much uh, in his career and and a really vast background that he has. Attorney, writer, film director, and former representative to the New York State Assembly. Uh, he, he served uh, from 1997-2000. And he was also born and raised in Manhattan and... Uh, um, Washington Heights. Uh, Washington Heights. In Washington Heights. That's right. That's right. My hometown. My hometown. We all we all have roots there, and uh, so I'm excited to to bring him on today. Um, hear about a lot of his work that he has done, and of course he he's won uh, several several accolades and and awards, uh, including awards for best editorial writing from the National Association of Hispanic Journalists. I'm also a member of that organization. Um, And he also wrote, produced, and directed the movie Vote for Me. And his most recent work is War Against All Puerto Ricans, a nonfiction book about the life of Puerto Rican independence leader Pedro Albizu Campos and the treatment of Puerto Rican nationalists by agencies of the United States government. And, of course, we've posted the link to his bio on the show page. So if you have an opportunity and you want to do some some more background uh, reading on him, please, by all means, uh, go to that link. Uh, we're going to connect him now, Joe. And and thank you so much, Joe, for making this happen. This is really no been problem. Great. My pleasure. My pleasure. Nelson is a good friend of mine. Wonderful. Hi, Nelson. You there? Yeah, I'm here. Uh, thanks for having me on thank- the show. So. It's a real pleasure and an honor. I appreciate it. Well, thank you so much for, for agreeing to come on the show. And uh, most people don't uh, say I, no to Joe Sanchez. <laughs> I, well, I have no choice because um, what, uh, what you didn't include in my bio is that Joe called me twice while he was working in Washington Heights. So I I pretty much, you know, have to do whatever Joe tells me. I'm kidding. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm kidding. I know, I know. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I know. And, and you know, there, there was a... Uh, I want to say, because I'm also from Washington Heights, born and raised. Uh, I grew up right by the old uh, Wadsworth Hospital. And uh, I want to say that there was a Dennis family that ran the Uptown Dispatch newspaper. Was that any relation to you? No, no, but I kind of remember. That was a while. That takes me back. That was to the 80s. Yeah. 80s and 90s. Yeah, yeah. Dispatch and then the bridge leader, I think. The, yes, um, but yes. I kind of remember that. But no, unfortunately, there, there wasn't any. Okay. 
But yeah, you yeah, really are. They, it's three Washingtonians here. This is great. That's right. That's right. And and uh, and I remember the Uptown Dispatch because they had a little office on 181st Street and Cabrini Boulevard. And I actually uh, did an internship when I was in high school uh, with them. So uh, huh. you know, it 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 does it does take me back. But um, you you were you were also born in Washington Heights. And how how long did you yeah. stay in Washington Heights? Well, pretty much my, my life, except for going away to school. Um, but essentially, I've, I've been here. I'm still here. I'm, I'm a, live on 172nd and Broadway um, in, in this apartment for the long time. But my mother was here, and then when she passed away, unfortunately, 10 years ago, I, I came back here. So um, I was born in the hospital there, Baby's Hospital, 165th and Broadway. Um, got yeah, that's where I was born, too. Yeah, Joe's <laughs> favorite block, 163rd. I, Joe was never right. around when I needed him. That's how it is. That's always how it is. <laughs> but then again, he was he was a cop thirty years later. So, so I'm just, right. You know, I read. By the way, I read his um, uh, Red Herring and um, there were, I think three books. Right, right, Joe. Um, Latin blues and books, blue. And, yeah, Latin blues. True blue, a tale of the enemy. True blue, a tale of the enemy within, and Red Herring. And the stinking trail, yeah. police corruption in Washington Heights. And let let me tell you what what they had such a ring of truth. Uh, you you one you can one uh, for me one one mark of really fine writing is when you read it. It takes you right there. You just you relive yes. the thing. And and Joe really has that that ability. It puts me right. You know, I could feel it. He wrote a lot about 163rd Street, which is a kind of a famous block. Um, there's always a lot of uh, action in, in there, and, uh, and that's yeah, one one of the things that really live, brought me close to Joe was reading his writing. Yeah, you okay. you live it vicariously, vicariously, you know. Yeah, because yeah. <laughs> I never did anything wrong, it, right, it, Joe? So I had to live. I had to no, no, it, Joe. It, no. Real fast, it was a block that when I first went through the three old other cops would tell me we don't go through here unless we get a, a call because it's a badass block. And I said, wait a minute, we're the cops. We have to badge. We're supposed to serve and protect. We're going in. And as soon as I started going in, believe it or not, other cops started going in. We we try to clean right, it up. Yeah. Right. And and, yeah. and and you know, for for many years, um, particularly I guess uh, late '80s, early '90s, when the crack epidemic took over in New York City and and the neighborhoods changed. Um, you know, we really got a bad rap, and uh, and there there are so many success stories coming out of Washington Heights, uh, and you being one of those, Nelson. Um, oh, you, you're you're one of the you're, you're one of the success stories. Um, you you went to Harvard College and Yale Law School. Yeah. I mean, I spent the, uh, <laughs> you know I paid my dues over there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but actually, you know, the, a lot of my and Joe takes me back to this. And I keep bringing Joe because it's just it's just very real, very true. It's, you know, I really this, there's this book I remember everything I needed to learn. I learned I learned in kindergarten. You know, a lot of the things that right. are the most important life lessons and the things that I, you know, as I look back on it, it really had nothing to do with Ivy League this or that. It had to do with just some of the common sense and some of the profound things that Joe encountered every day. And so a lot of times I just defer to Joe. It's like he's my hero. Um, the, the things that he went—that's uh, like heroism on a daily basis, going out there right. and l- literally putting your life on the line the way Joe did it. God, I mean, I right. sometimes I 
you know, I read this book. I say, I, I, it's amazing. So Cat has nine lives. Joe's like not got 90 or something. Um, so it was, right. well, he's, you know, there's book smarts and there's street smarts. And I think Joe's got both of them. So I'm really proud to know him. I, I, I appreciate that. I had good partners, Herman Velez, Susie Medici's, and uh, Charlie Whitfall, and uh, Louis Herrera. I had good partners to back me up. But let's get down to your story. Come on. Let's. What's, yeah, yeah. Ahead, and, let me and, add one and, more and, thing. And, 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 one more thing, topographically, yeah, and, as far and, as Washington Heights, because Joe came sure. in. Um, I was born. I was born in 1954, so I know. You know, I have a sort of just an instinctive feel for the, for the neighborhood. Things changed a lot in 1961 because a lot of people might not know this. It's when they added the second level to the George Washington Bridge, and the George Washington Bridge is the busiest bridge in the world. 300,000 vehicles mm-hmm. per day coming over, over thing. Um, it's, it, it, re- it generates revenue over a billion dollars a year. But anyway, the doubling right. of the carrying capacity of that bridge immediately brought a level of, con- of congestion and commercialization, certainly the environmental effects. But that single architectural feature, I believe, had more to do than any single demographic thing, than the Dominicans or anything you want to call it. And, but sometimes people don't realize it, you know, that like Robert Moses – you know, New Yorkers know a lot about Robert Moses. That I think that bridge right. really affected uh, the quality of life in, in Washington Heights. But yeah, yeah I'm mm-hmm. happy to very happy to talk about my book. In particular, I'll say this, Michael, because um, just two days, three days ago, March second was specifically March second marked the 100th anniversary of Puerto Ricans as U.S. citizens. We were made citizens in March Correct. 2 of 1917, exactly one month before Woodrow Wilson sent his declaration of war to the U.S. Congress, and nearly 20,000 Puerto Ricans were conscripted into World War One. Um, so it was a somewhat of a, of a qualified um, uh, uh, gift in the first place that we were made citizens just in time to be sent off 20,000 Puerto Ricans to be sent off to war, and it's been a sort of a troubled relationship ever since. And so I, I really appreciate that you know being able to sort of get the word out because a hundred years later, um, to bring it full circle, it, we really the I, this is subjective on my part, but I think there's enough empirical discussion here. We haven't really gone much further. They have, they've installed the financial control board to run the economy and the government of Puerto Rico. They've exercised jurisdiction over more than two, two dozen state agencies, including the Central Commonwealth Government, the Central Bank, the Tourism Board, the Housing Authority, the Electrical and Power and, and uh, Water and Aqueduct Authorities. Everything, the whole government, is under the jurisdiction right. of an unelected financial control board that, in my view, is nothing but a glorified collection agency or some Wall Street interests and, and some hedge funds. So Puerto Rico is, in, uh, and we'll discuss some of that, you know, in the time that we have. Um, so this is a really a good time for people to, you know, reflect. The way I feel, there's been a hundred years of solitude uh, in Puerto right. Rico. So I really appreciate this opportunity to talk about it. Yeah, and, and actually, I'll be traveling there next month, and I haven't been, I haven't been to Puerto Rico in uh, roughly, I want to say, off the top of my head, probably uh, twelve years, but. I'm not even sure about that. That's how long it's been. So, I'm I'm uh, I'm definitely looking looking forward to the trip. Mm-hmm. Um, so, Nelson, I, I want to focus on um, on your early years first. You know, in terms of growing up in Washington Heights and growing up in the city, and uh, and I your your father was Cuban, 
and your mom was Puerto yeah. Rican, correct? Yeah, and so some early family events um, uh, uh, focused my my um, attention and my sensitivity to some of these historical issues because my father was taken by the FBI when I was eight years old, uh, just a few weeks after the Cuban Missile Crisis in 1962, and the FBI came around three in the morning and they knocked on the door and they took him and they deported him to, to Cuba. And I never saw him. We never saw him again. I was an only child raised by my mother and my grandmother. And so that was a, you know, a, a very pivotal event in my life. The day that the FBI came, took my father away. They accused him of being a G2 Cuban spy, which is like a 007 type of spy. Right. Which is really right. ridiculous because my father was working for 32 Union, 32 BJ, and he didn't really speak that very good English. So if you're going to have a spy, that wasn't a very a, the best spy to have, a guy who, you know, Get a spy. Get a, a guy who's you know can really spy, spy effectively. But my father had was a lot of meetings. He was very he was pro Castro. You, you know he didn't make any uh, any any secret of it. But that doesn't mean he was a spy. Right. But I so that had an early effect. My mother was working as a seamstress in a garment center, and so suddenly she had to three mouths to feed her, her grandmother who was who was taking care of me while she worked, her, her mother rather my grandmother. And Grandma at that time was already about 75 years old. So suddenly my mother, worked, right. who was making something like, I don't know, 40 bucks a week in 1962, I was three miles to feed. And, and that, um, it had to do a lot with the formulation of my character because I, I could tell, even an eight-year-old, you could tell when there's no room for error. There was no margin. I couldn't afford to screw up much because, you know, how could right. I be a burden to my mother? So in a, in a, in a weird way, that made me a good student. Because I, you know, I really didn't have much room to screw up. I, I, so, you know, I just read a lot, you know, and partly of my my affinity for going to law school, I think, was so that nobody would knock on my door someday and tear my family apart at three in the morning. So that, was, right. that always changes me. And when I, I uh, let me say one thing: when the FBI declassified 1.8 million pages of previously secret police files. Uh, that had been maintained on over 100,000 Puerto Ricans for a period of six decades. They were called carpetas. That was part of the history, of the, uh, of the tarnished history between the United States and Puerto Rico. They trying to su- suppress the nationalist movement. They kept secret police files on over 100,000 people. They were declassified in the year 2000. When I, then, when I heard about that and I started reading them, and they were, these are FBI files, that really started tapping into my memory of my father, and that's when I became really sure. very serious about writing this book. Right. Now, did, did anyone, including your mom, did anyone ever hear about what happened to your father? Well, we got letters from him. Um, and, in fact, my mother did what she could. We were actually going to try and follow. And when that happened, my mother did what she could to actually – we were going to try and go to Cuba. But it just it didn't become possible. Um, and he then was never able to get out again. He apparently had a difficult life, um, and I think he passed away in 1983. Um, so he lasted another 21 years, kind of relatively young. I, I don't know. I don't think he made it to to seven to 70 years of age. I never saw him again. We spoke once over the phone. I was, I think, 14 years old, um, and so that was it. That you know, it was pretty final. He was gone, and. We got a, we got a few letters from. Them. They were always be opened, opened and then retaped, and some a few things would would be um, they uh, they they'd be, uh, they'd be crossed off so that they they were making it very clear that they were reading our mail. 
So um, right. that was it. You know, he, we we tried to get back together. It didn't didn't happen. Oh, I'm so sorry about that. It's hey, an amazing story. That's that, an amazing story. It is. It is. I mean, is there any chance that he wasn't in Cuba? Maybe he was in custody no, no, in the I've, U.S.? I've heard, no, I've heard from other people that he was in Cuba. I mean, if he'd have made it to the United States, you know, why wouldn't, you know, there'd be no reason for us to get back, bring us back together, or at least let us know. I don't know. He, he's, he was, we heard through some other people over time that he had passed away in El Oriente, part of Cuba. Unfortunately, oh, okay. yeah. Okay, so you were raised but, with you know I had a good mom. mom. She worked hard. My mom and grandma they really filled in. They, you know, a lot of these communities are they're just they're matriarchies, and sometimes the moms have to really pick up, and the women are the unsung heroes. <laughs> you know, we hear right, right. You know, some of the other, but very often the women are the ones that you know that real bear the burden and make things happen. So my mom was a right. hero. Indeed, indeed. And 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 then at some point uh, you you completed high school, right? Uh, where did yeah, you go to high yeah. school? Well, like I said, I, I st- you know I was just a good student. I just uh, I, I I I guess instinctively I figured I'm gonna have to live by my around here because <laughs> there's a lot of right. a lot of things that I can't control. So I just you know I did all right. So I was able to uh, get scholarships. It was Sort of the, the and the affirm, beginning of the affirmative action, so I got to go to a place called Taft in Connecticut. Um, I went to Taft, and then, then you know, I just did you know I did what I needed to do, and I went to Harvard and Yale. That's phenomenal. What I did then, do though and, when I got and, out is you know cash in on it and try to become. I had to pay some student loans, so I worked. I worked in a law firm for a while, but that wasn't really. I have to tell you the truth, Mike. If I had to do it again. Maybe I wouldn't have gone to uh, law school. I, I don't know if you've noticed or if you agree, but so it's we've developed into a society. And our current president, I think, that, and my and and Joe, this is no disparagement. So because that's I know that's another no, no, no. Listen, listen, listen. We may have our political differences, but we're friends. We're friends. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So but you just speak yeah, your agree. mind. Speak but your it, mind. That's what makes America okay. great. We don't have to worry about getting our okay. heads chopped off. But what I'm what, what I'm saying, and this has it actually doesn't specifically deal with Trump, is the sociological component. We're in a society now where it seems to me that to effectuate some real meaningful change, you could go to law school, right, and be a lawyer. But it's it, apparently it's more the point that, to the point where it's better to go to drama school, play a lawyer on TV, and then everybody <laughs> will listen to you. That's right. It's, it's, Right. That, 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 is, right. that is a great point. That is a great point. That's and not right. only that, you'll 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 do better financially as well. Everything, everything, and they'll, people yeah. will ask you for legal advice. You'll be you'll make more money as a lawyer <clears throat> by impersonating one as a, on TV than by doing this. But uh, that's, that's another. Right. But um, also uh, one one thing I did develop though, which is good, um, which is a re- respect for factual underpinnings. So really. This is again, Joe. You know, but the alternate facts, I don't go for that. And you, as a, as a law enforcement, I'm sure also you appreciate. Hey, there's right and wrong. You know, let's not get this gray area or truthiness. There's, you know, there's there's some things here that you know that we need to be clear, and, and at the very least, so that we have, we can have a common basis for a, a reality, so that, so we can have a dialogue. Because you know, we people right. entitled to their own set. Of, that you've heard this, their own their own opinions, but not their own set of facts. 
So that's what I tried to do right. in, in the book, uh, War Against All Puerto Ricans, the title of the book. And even that, that was, that's the title because the, the police chief of Puerto Rico said them. He said them to, to the whole island. He murdered several nationalists, and it was murder, and it's written in the book. And it's, I have over 700 footnotes, so um, it's not – I'm not well, that was, expounding. That was Colonel Francis, that was Colonel Francis Riggs. E. Francis Riggs. So he, he uh, yes. four, four nationalists and one guy getting a lotto ticket. Then he called the press, and uh, when they asked him what, what he did, why, he said, it's very simple. If Albizu Campos, who was his great nationalist leader at, at the time, continues to, and his nationalist group, continue to agitate the sugarcane workers and university students, there's going to be war to the death against all Puerto Ricans. And then they delivered on that promise right. the very next year, something called the Ponce Massacre, where they killed in broad daylight, men, women, and children, all of them unarmed, including a seven-year-old girl they shot in the back, and um, severely wounded over 200 more that, that had to go to the hospital. So that, the, that's a clear indicator of how things were going, moving in that direction. But let me, can I, let me, take, let me go back one step further historically, just real quick. I'm, I yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Let, let, me just, let me just make one announcement, Nelson, and that is if anyone's sure. listening and they want to call in, so for those listeners that would like to call in and maybe ask a question, um, the call-in number is 929-477-1785. Again, that's 929-477-1785. Go ahead, Nelson. So uh, just a sort of a real quick thumbnail history it's to, con to contextualize the well, my book, but also this 100-year history and also, when I as, as I talk during this this time that uh, now, um, so that it doesn't feel like it's just uh, opinion on my part, um, the United States uh, through the the uh, Spanish American War acquired Puerto Rico through the Treaty of Paris in 1898. The very next year, the most severe hurricane of the century, the 19th century, Huracan San Siriaco, destroyed just devast 150 mile an hour winds, devastated the year and entire year's coffee crop. Thousands of farmers basically lost their, their farms. The United States didn't send any meaningful relief. This was in 1899. Instead, the following year, 1900, they devalued the currency of Puerto Rico by 40%. Devalued, just straight out. And wow. so 40, everybody, every Puerto Rican lost 40% of their net worth overnight. If you imagine that happening here in this country, the country would shut down. Um, so you have a hurricane, right. a currency devaluation, and then the very next year, 1901, through the Hollander Act, they, they – they imposed a set of land and property taxes, steeply graduated taxes that are never unprecedented on the island. So between the hurricane, the depreciation, and the, and the taxes, Puerto Ricans were losing their farms all over. They need loans where they need something, liquidity. Only place to go was the was called the American Colonial Bank. But guess what? There's no usury law restriction. So the bank, the bank charged – they did exactly what they wanted. They didn't want – it was like Phil Rizzuto at the money store. Just like, sure – Come on down. We're, we're, we've got this money because they didn't want the loans repaid. Right. They wanted the underlying collateral, which was the land. And within 30 years, by 1928, 80% of the they, – first of all, they turned the previously diversified agri agriculture, self-sustaining, where Puerto Ricans fed themselves uh, coffee, tobacco, sugar, fruits, all the, just a, you know, a complete agricultural economy. They turned it into a one-crop cash cow economy, that of sugar. And – and the vast majority of the of the land on the cultivation was sugar, 80% of which was owned by North American banking syndicates. Four of them, they were called centrales, just four of them, Aguirre, Fajardo, 
East Puerto Rico Sugar and Guanica. Those four owned over half the land of Puerto Rico, or the farmlands. It's four corporations. Uh, they also own the, the, most of the physical infrastructure, the coastal railroad system, the trolley system, the, the, about half right. of the municipal light and power and water utilities, and all of this within 30 years. So, you know, it's clear that the United States came in and, and they acted like, like an empire. And they, you know, they saw something. It was like Jim Plunkett. They seen their opportunities and they, and they took them. This didn't work well for Puerto Ricans who were made citizens in 1917. They go to war, 20,000 of them. Some get shot, some die, come back. They're, they're supposed to be citizens. And lo, lo and behold, oh, the Territorial and Supremacy Clauses do not permit some of the privileges and immunities of the U.S. Constitution to apply to you. Therefore, there's no, there, at that time, no minimum wage. You can go to war. You can shoot, get shot at. But there's no minimum wage for you in Puerto Rico. People start, were starting to – they were starving. Um, now the Depression hit, right. and this is where you get the agricultural strike that I mentioned before. Pedro Albizu Campos, a brilliant man who became the leader of the Nationalist Party, first Puerto Rican to go to Harvard, Harvard Law School. And that is when the empire and Puerto Rico really started going at it head-to-head because when they won that agricultural strike, which they did, they shut down the, uh, the economy down there for four months, um, the United States discovered, oh, wow, you know, the local police down there, they know each other. They were born in the same town. So it's not Pinkerton guards. These people are, are, are – we lost this strike because those people, they're not going to beat their own people over the head with a billy club. So then they militarized right, right. the police course, force. And, they, and, and Joel understands because this is different. This isn't policing. This is, this is subjugation. It was something different. They sent in a whole wave of FBI men, with, and they, they gave Tommy gun training, and they militarized the police force. And they turned it into really an occupying army. And that's where they sent E. Francis Riggs, who was a military intelligence officer. And the new governor of Puerto Rico, Blanton Winship, was an army general with experience in dealing with Native American populations. So they didn't send in a legislator or an economic develop, development chief or a diplomat. They sent someone that had a chasing Native American. That's what they, the, the way wow. they chose to deal with Puerto Rico. And that's where you start getting the Ponce massacre that I mentioned and uh, the Carpetas. The, the FBI uh, chasing people around. And that's where my book sort of starts to really pay attention. It, it sort of takes off there because it's very dramatic what happened on the island in the middle of the, of the, of the last century. And it gives us an idea of how we got to where we are today, where we'll, you know, maybe we can discuss that later on. But basically, Puerto Rico has been a, sort of a, there's been a unilateral relationship. First, Puerto Rico was a naval coaling station. Then it was a sugar empire. Right. And it became a, a cheap labor tax haven now it's it's uh, becoming a municipal bond debtor and a target for privatization and so it's just been this long sequence of what basically has been the patri- united puerto rico frankly has been patronized to death and um there isn't a lot a lot of room left and that's why over a million puerto ricans have left the island in the, in the last 12 years and and my book um surprised me it became the best-selling book in puerto rico for 2015 and 2016 because of this, because of the the economic wow. situation, and now the the financial control board, so it, it even caught my publisher by surprise, which is which is nice. Wow. It and, kind of annoyed me that <laughs> they didn't print enough books. What, what, but they printed them. Right. What what year what year was your book published in? April April the hardcover came out in April 2015, and then they've been publishing it continuously ever ever since, and it's been doing okay. pretty well. And now we're working on get making it into a, a film. And so that's our next, okay. uh, hopefully the next goal. 
And and is yeah. it also available well, in yeah, other languages? For that movie. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Is it available in other languages? In Spanish. Yeah, they translated it. Okay. Um, and it's done, it's done in Puerto Rico. It's the, sometimes, depending on the day, on Amazon, it's still a bestseller. It was a number one Amazon bestseller in both languages for over a year. Um, and then once in a while, it sort of go, goes back up again. And w- when this movie, which I think is going to happen, when that gets underway, then I'm sure that it'll, it'll pick up again. The important thing is that there's a historical component here. Right now is when this financial control board have, has gone in with a very specific mandate, which is to convert that debt of 70, supposedly this public debt that Puerto Rico owes of $72 billion and, and transmute it into what probably they're going to they're gonna call them public-private partnerships, P3s, but they're really P5s, right. public-private partnerships for the plunder of Puerto Rico, because they're going to try to convert the entire public infrastructure, meaning the highways, uh, uh, rail, well, not much railroad system, uh, schools, prisons, um, a, a water and electrical, the electrical grid. They they already sent out the RFPs, a request for proposal for privatizing the electrical grid in Puerto Rico. They pay 27 cents per kilowatt hour for their electricity in Puerto Rico, which is nearly three times. We pay about 10 cents per kilowatt hour here in New York City. So they're already paying through the nose. And the per capita income in Puerto Rico is only roughly $15,500, which is half that of Mississippi, the poorest state in the United States. So you can, there's wow. only so much that you can get from the people of Puerto Rico. In the year 2013 alone, they raised – listen to this. They raised 105 tax, different taxes in Puerto Rico. It's, it's, wow. It's, all, it's like surrealistic. You know, the sales tax, yeah. 11.5%. They raised the gasoline tax and twice just, in the same year. Water – Water rates went up 60% wow. in the last three years. Just, it, can't, it can't go wow. on like this. I mean, how, 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 can, yeah, how can people afford to live there? I mean, it, it, well, you know, with, yeah. with tax the rates they can't, they can't. going They're up. They're moving. 800,000. Yeah. You ask Joe. Joe, I mean, how many in, Puerto, in, in Orlando, how many Puerto Ricans? You, you, you can say this. What is it, uh, uh, 800,000? 800,000. And, and you know it. And, yeah, and actually, there's, there's, there's a lot. There's a lot here in South Florida as well. There, there are a lot. Of Puerto, there's a raise. huge Puerto Rican community here in South Florida, uh, where I am. Um, and and of course, there's other They're parts leaving. of the country. You know, Chicago has a has a large uh, Puerto Rican community as well. Uh, other places throughout the country. The the net the net outflow from the island because some people come in, but the net rate that's leaving the island is about. 1,500 Puerto Ricans a day are moving off the wow. island. Wow. 1,500 a day. Who's going to own the they, island? Who's going to own the island when everybody it. leaves? Well, they, and that's, so, so, you know, so I, I, and I, I know that this sounds you, on my point. Uh-huh. No, go ahead, Nelson. Uh, yeah, but no, I have Nelson, a question answer. for Nelson. And, and, okay. and let me mention, by the way, your, your, your book is still a bestseller on Amazon. I'll be ordering my copy this evening. But um, uh, my question to you, Nelson, is uh, statehood, independence, or leave it as it is? You mean my what I think? Yeah. Is, is that you, what you're asking what I think? Well, let me answer it in what may sound seem circuitous, but you'll, you'll see that as the more, most responsible way. Let me do it by the process of deduction so that you yourself okay. can, can, see, can arrive at hopefully – 
Um, there's something called Occam's razor, which is when you eliminate the impossible, whatever is remaining, no matter how improbable, is probably the answer. So, um, right. so uh, applying Occam's razor to Puerto Rico statehood, um, it was a, there's been four referenda, and uh, the last one was in favor. It hasn't made, there hasn't been any, any difference. Now it's, they're talking about it again, but let's look at three, three levels here, the economic, political, and sociological, economically. Wall Street uh, uses triple tax-exempt bonds uh, that have annual yields up to 18 to 20% per year from Puerto Rico. Puerto Rico is the only U.S. jurisdiction that can issue the triple tax-exempt bonds because it's not a state. They're enormously profitable to Wall Street. It is those bonds that have plummeted Puerto Rico into the $72 billion debt right now. And once this debt is taken care of, you can bet that it's fiscal crack for Wall Street. They love right. these triple tax-exempt bonds. So Wall Street, in general, does not want statehood for Puerto Rico. They want the triple tax-exempt bonds. The Jones Act, which is the, merchant, the Section 27 of the Merchant Marine Act of 1920, otherwise known as the Jones yes. Act. The citizenship is Jones Shafra, which is 1917. But 1920 is the Jones Act, under which um, U.S. vessels uh, have to be U.S.-owned, U.S.-built, and U.S.-crewed. Uh, the crew has to be U.S. from one port to another. But on a de facto basis, what the Jones Act does, it provides a price support for U.S. products because every foreign registry vessel has to unload, has to go to either if it goes directly into Puerto Rico, it pays duties, uh, quotas, taxes, fees, excise fees. The net, the net result is that everything on that boat ends up costing 20% more to the, the consumer in Puerto Rico, any foreign goods. Now, the foreign registry vessel can also go specifically to Jacksonville, Florida, where it gets offloaded, the original foreign registry vessel, and reloaded onto a U.S. boat. Then it, can go, it gets rerouted back to, to Puerto Rico. Again, the, everything on that boat ends up costing about 20%. It does one more thing, though. It provides a price support system for all, because all those are foreign goods. So then the United States consumer goods companies, and especially automobile companies, they can just slightly underbid. And since Puerto Ricans are poor, I told you the per capita income, less than half that of Mississippi, if they can save a few pennies on, on regular items, you, could, you bet they will. So therefore, right. the Jones Act provides a price support for U.S. companies to sell their goods at hyperinflated rates in Puerto Rico. It is for that reason that Puerto Rico is the fifth largest market in the world for U.S. goods, and there's more Walmarts and Walgreens per square mile in Puerto Rico than anywhere else on the planet. That Jones Act it's costing Puerto Rico between 3 to $5 billion a year. If you do the math, this is 1920 to now, it's 97 years. 97, say, times $4 billion is I think $388 billion. That's a rough month. That's, you, you know, I'm just taking it on the basis of, say, $4 billion a year. Whatever multiple sure. you use, it is clear that if it weren't for the Jones, the Jones Act alone, you could have paid this debt to Puerto Rico four or five times. Now, do you, do you think those consumer good companies and the automobile company that can sell a car, the same car costs $6,000 more in San Juan than it does in Miami? They don't want the Jones Act to go away, nor do the Teamsters, the Longshoremen, the Merchant Marine Unions in Jacksonville, Florida. They don't want to remove the, the Jones Act, nor the shipping carrier companies that, that have the shipping monopoly. So economically, if you think about it, so you've got Wall Street, you've got automobile companies, consumer good companies, Unions, including the Teamsters in Jacksonville, Florida. That's a lot of economic opposition for Puerto Rico becoming a state. But wait a minute. Now we've got the politics. If Puerto Rico comes in, you get two senators and maybe roughly four or five congresspeople. 
can you name four or five states that will willingly concede a congressional seat and say, here's my wife, you know, you know take my wife, please? And they'll say to Puerto Rico, sure, take my congressional seat. Okay, in, in this contentious right. political environment that exists in Washington, it is very unlikely that you're going to get some states that are going to say, sure, we want Puerto Rico and we're willing to give, to give up a seat. And that's before you get that's to the very Republican good point. issue. Yeah, right. and that, but that's even without regard to partisanship because – very probably those those seats those uh, representatives are going to be Democrats. So do you think that in a Trump with a Trump White House and a Republican majority that they're looking to get some some fire breathing Spanish speaking Puerto Ricans that are all Democrats anytime soon? Heck no, they don't they don't want that. So then please, there's very stiff opposition. There, there will be there's no there's none. What's in it for them? There's there's nothing in it for Congress. To, to let these people in. Now, and then I'll go sociologically. Ann Coulter writes Adios America, becomes the number one bestseller. Donald Trump reads the book and applies chapters 14 and 15, which are specifically the chapters that talk about building a wall and deporting people. He's president. So if we have a president that is deporting people right now, to, to back to, and we're building a wall against Mexico, it really doesn't seem like the, the time that, well, that this country is going to welcome Puerto Rico with open, with open arms and say, sure, come in. With your $72 billion debt, we're going to forgive that debt. Come on in as a state. It's not going to happen. So when I'm, I, I went through right. this kind of like, you know, in some detail, Michael, because I just want you to – it's not me. Um, I think that statehood is definitely preferable to what Puerto Rico is now because Puerto Rico was right. officially declared a colony in July 9, 2016, last year. When the Obama administration uh, argued and the Supreme Court agreed that under the Territorial Supremacy Clause, Puerto Rico is a dependent territory of the United States, is the Sanchez Valle v. Puerto, Puerto Rico decision. And on that, on that date, the Obama administration specifically said Puerto Rico is a colony. It's a territorial possession of the United States. The Supreme Court agreed, and guess what? The other branch of government, the Congress, it was on that day that Congress passed H.R. 490, the, the PROMESA bill that created the Financial Control Board, it was passed in Congress on the same day. How many times do you, do you have all three branches of the federal government through some celestial alchemy agreeing on, on something that big <laughs> all on the same day? Right, <laughs> you know? right. So, That's so, unheard of. That's so, unheard of. Right. So, so I'm walking you through these things. Statehood, um, it's really – I don't think it's viable. The Commonwealth, which what they claim, we're claiming our own government has specifically repudiated it, and economically we have $72 billion reasons why it's not working. So what is that, what right. is that leaving you? And notice what I did. I didn't give an opinion. We just walked through these options, especially when you consider right. the Jones Act that is strangling the Puerto, Puerto Rican economy. Puerto Rico cannot engage in any international trade relations of its own, can't set its own pro, uh, consumer prices. It, has, it is utterly dependent on uh, the U.S. For, for the service of its market for all its, because, because of the Jones Act. So when you take all those into consideration, Mike, I think that just it's a very reasonable, uh, reasonable equation there for considering independence because the other two that simply don't, they don't seem real. They, they're, they're, they don't seem like they're, that they, they're going to work for Puerto Rico. So that leaves us with independence. So that's my answer to your question. I think independence is, even if only by default, but I think it's also uh, emotionally and spiritually, it's consistent with the, with the sense of human freedom. And if it's good for Nelson Mandela, it should be good for Puerto Rico. Right, but, but would Puerto Rico be able to sustain itself 
as an independent nation? Good question. And, you know, and you're getting at the, at the heart because there's something that's developed, Michael, and it's, un, it's, un, it's unfortunate, but it is human nature. There's a feeling of Stockholm syndrome in Puerto Rico. Um, people right. that, that know that the information is right there. It's like a cognitive dis- disconnect. It's somehow like the brain gets the information, but it doesn't process it. If we know that more money is going out to U.S. corporations through these inflated, inflated prices, that, that they exceed the, tra- the federal transfer payments, the welfare and the, uh, the, 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 non- the, the not paying the federal income taxes, although Puerto Ricans pay many other taxes. And when you add them all up together, there's, there's been, there's, I can, you, I can send you a link if you want tonight. I'll send it to you and Joe. Where there's a very clear uh, professor, a University of Puerto Rico professor, and she's the head of the economics department in, in uh, Rio Piedras, who walks through the point by point, line item by line item, and shows that Puerto Rico will be better off economically if we're in, if we were independent. But the problem, cousin Michael, which is, and this is a, the, this is where it gets rough. Try telling that to the guy or to the mom who has, has to pay her rent next month, and she says, wait a minute, I'm going to pay for your principles and for your high-minded politics. Excuse me, I want my check from the United States. Right. I'm sorry, but you, right. you know, can keep your politics, but I got rent to pay next. And that's the problem, that we, you know, we've been sort of caught, caught up in this, in this short-term um, way of thinking, and it's very difficult. It's difficult to get around that, but at some point, I think that the dam is going to have to break because it's becoming increasingly unsustainable. If you get this money, but you're being taxed to death, then what good does the money do you? Right, right. And and of course, right now they they have no representation in in the mainland. You know, so so that makes it that makes it difficult too, because who's really looking out for Puerto Rico's interests at this this point? I think what, what's going to happen, they're going to have a plebiscite. They're going to have this random. They've got one scheduled for June. And um, I, I am all for it, even though I just told you that I don't think the statehood is going to – I really – because the party that just won and came into office in Puerto Rico is the statehood party. And, and that is their sort of their reason for existence electorally. They, they, right. they campaign on that, and that's like their big – and then they don't deliver anything else. They just campaign on – so fine. Go and have your referendum in June. You know, get get a huge majority. I hope they do. You know what? Because right. statehood would be preferable, I think, to Commonwealth. But when you take that statehood to Washington, and if you get kicked in the teeth, then you better come back and have some other paradigm shifts ready for Puerto Rico. Because otherwise, all you're going to get is a financial control board that's going to that's going to that's going to gobble up like a Pac-Man the entire the physical infrastructure of Puerto Rico. Take all of it and, put, and subject it to 50-year 50 50 year leases, and then what are you going to be left with? Then what, what it's going to be, Puerto Rico is just going to be a high-priced Disneyland for, for wealthy Americans and for tourists. So I hope that this, this right. Commonwealth, the, the uh, referendum, that it comes through and then loud and clear and that we have a real discussion. We'll, then we'll see what the American government says when the, when the results come in. And, and who appoints the Financial Control Board? Ah, great! Another quick question. Um, the, the, the president um, uh, gives approved lists, and then the the senator, the Senate, and Congress pick from that list, and they 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 each got a, one uh, appointee on the list as well. So basically, they're appointed in Washington, and um, 
I wrote an article that came out in The Nation just two, two or three days ago, and I, what I did is I put a lot of hyperlinks into it so that people could see the facts, you know, read the, the, uh, the underlying data and uh, the news reports underneath. So one of those reports is that this current financial seven-member financial control board has three people on it that um, were that created some of the financial instruments that created and, and not that they are now profiting from the credit the, the credit problem of, of Puerto Rico, and they're sitting on that financial control board. They were appointed by, by Congress. So it's not, it's not really a healthy process when you have an imposed colonial board that was elected by no one um, telling an entire island right. how to live, where to spend their money, what they can't have. They've already uh, issued a $300 million budget cut to the University of Puerto Rico, and they've already forced the closure and sale of 350 public schools. The Financial Control Board, the FCB, has also called for a 10% reduction in uh, pension payments and an increase in the in the retirement age. And they're they're discussing now reducing the minimum wage to four dollars and twenty five cents in Puerto Rico. That that wow. is just it's like a prescription for disaster. It's going to become a humanitarian yeah. crisis if this keeps up. Well, and and, so, and and I think you also brought up you you also brought up a, a really good point that I think a lot of people haven't even considered, and, and I know I certainly haven't, and that is, you know, what state is going to give up some of their delegates? You know, if if, yeah. if, if the move is for Puerto Rico to, to become a state, because, you know, in the Constitution I, yeah. there's a certain number of electorates. So, so, you know, what state is going to say, oh, yeah, you can have two of mine. Sure, no problem. Exactly. And, I mean, and if you that, add to that the one. current state of that electorate, this is a state, and again, this is not, a, and I say this to Joe, but because he understands this, this is not to pick, you know, any issue or any fight, but it just happens to be a, an electorate that at this point voted in Do- Donald Trump. It's, that is not an environment that is conducive to saying welcoming Puerto Rico with, o- with open arms. You can't expect that. So anyway, well, it's so, going to be interesting to see how, the, how that Mike, yeah. I want to get back to the book for a moment. There's one thing that, that um, I wanted sure. to let the audience, the people know that a real culminating event where um, this man, Pedro Albizu Campos, his national leader, very brilliant, spoke six languages, um, went to jail for 25 years, and there's a mounting body of evidence that he was tortured in jail for many, for many of those years. He was in jail for the same thing as Nelson Mandela, seditious conspiracy, except Nelson Mandela, even by this country, is considered a freedom fighter, and Pedro de Sucampos, they consider him something else. But what he did in 1950, which is just on dramatic terms, really, it was really striking. He saw that um, Puerto Rico was going to under, undergo a referendum for this commonwealth. Because in 1950, 51, Puerto Rico was still nothing. It had no official status. But the United States was, in, it was locked in a cold war with Russia, and it could ill afford during the 50s to pre- present itself as the leader of the free world and then go to the U.N. And, and have the U.N. say, but you still have the, the oldest colony in existence. How can you be the leader of a, right. of a free anything? So it, it, didn't, it behooved the United States to, to take care of that. And the way they did it was with this commonwealth. And Albizu Campos, they, they, when, he, when he got out of jail the first time, they sent him to, after the, shortly after that agricultural strike, they managed to get him in jail real quick. He was gone to jail for 10 years. When he comes out, is when they promulgated Law 53, a gag law which made it a crime, a felony punishable by 10 years, to say a word, sing a song, 
whistle a tune, make any utterance against the United States or in favor of Puerto Rico or own a Puerto Rican flag, any of those things were, were a felony punishable by 10 years. They abrogated the First Amendment rights of the entire island to shut up one man, Alviso Campos, when he came out of jail. That's really dramatic. This guy comes out of jail. They right. pass a law just for him. So now when he comes out and he sees what they're doing with this gag law, with the carpetas, the 100,000 police files, he said, you know, we're going to get one last shot at this. When they put in this commonwealth, it's like that game over. So we need to try to dis- disrupt this in some way. The FBI was following him around all the time. They had a, a constant 24 hours. There was like three or four agents every, everywhere he went. Um, so he had to secretly and to, uh, to many mechanisms organize a resistance to this. And what they did was it was modeled after the Easter Rising of 1916 in Ireland. Uh, it happens that Abisu Campos knew Eamon de Valera, and he was, and Eamon, Mr. de Valera even asked him to help draft one of the earlier drafts of the, the Irish Free Republican Constitution. They knew each other for, um, when uh, de Valera visited Harvard. So anyway, Abisu really understood the Irish re- relationship to the British Empire, and the Easter Rising was a, a revolution that, did, that didn't work. It, they, it was put down quickly, but it created a, a moral position for Ireland that the world responded to. And so that's what Albizu Campos tried to do in 1950. They're going to have that first referendum for this commonwealth. And what he tried to do was stage a, a, a weekend revolution to stop that election that was going to happen on a certain Tuesday. So they pl- he planned this revolution. It, went, it, it tore through eight cities. The United States put it down swiftly and severely because they had agents. They had people. They had informants, even in his nationalist party. So unfortunately, they, they saw, saw it coming. The United States mobilized 3,000 soldiers, no, 5,000 soldiers, arrested 3,000 Puerto Ricans, and bombed 2,000 in broad daylight, Utuado and Hayuya. It's the only time in U- wow. U.S. history that the bo- U.S. bombed its own citizens in broad daylight. You know, just in, in not, it wasn't even a wartime. Um, they, they, this happened just, and you don't even, people don't hear about it up here. Um, I think the vast majority of the American public does not know that there was a revolution in, in Puerto Rico where the two towns were, were bombed. And it's, and it's very dramatic, and that's sort of the culminating uh, chapters of my book, War Against All Puerto Ricans, because there's a history right. that happened in Puerto Rico that uh, American citizens aren't aware of. And I, and I think it's important. A hundred years of, of citizenship shouldn't be a hundred years of solitude. I'm trying to open up right. that dialogue. Yeah, and 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 actually, uh, and I think your article as well. Um, you know, after a century of American citizenship, Puerto Ricans have little to show for it. Yeah, and that's uh, yeah. that article is is available at thenation.com, um, and it's also on uh, Nelson Dennis's Twitter page. So if you want to go there, you can get access to the article. It's a pretty extensive Nelson. article. You know that that talks about a lot of the history that you're discussing uh, today. Nelson, let Go me ahead, ask you Joe. something. Nelson, now mm-hmm. are we talking about 1954 with the uh, Lolita Lebron when this came about yeah, in question. Puerto Rico, or are we talking separate event? Separate event. Oh, were uh, we talking about group, 1950? The same Playhouse. Playhouse. Was October 1950. It was October 1950. Okay, that was and then four years. That was the incident with Playhouse. Later, was uh, sorry. Right, that was the incident Hello? in Blair House in 1950. Yeah, can you hear yeah, me? Yeah, that was four years later. Yeah, four years later. Okay, I got you. Yeah, so I just want to get the Blair House was 1950. Uh, uh, no, Blair House was 1950. 1950 was... They, well, they tried to kill yes. Truman. 
uh, Lolita Lebron, which you, you just mentioned, right? Lolita Lebron was fifty four. Uh, was nineteen fifty four. Was in nineteen fifty four, and they went to Congress. Right. They started shooting in Congress. Yeah. Right. She made a uh, statement. Uh, though. She made a statement. She made a statement that, and she says that we're just trying to let the world know what's going on in Puerto Rico. You cannot beat the United States, this little island. But we're trying to let mm-hmm. the world know what's been going on since the United States took over Puerto Rico. And, that, yeah, and you know, that's that, a strong statement. And you're hitting on something. Go ahead. Because when you think, you realize that Puerto Rico is 1,500 miles away, separated by a, an ocean, by a language. The black experience, as, as tragic and, um, and, and, it's, and ongoing as it is, is something that occurs right in front of, it's in our backyard. It's in our neighborhoods. It's in front of us. But what happened in Puerto Rico happens 1,500 miles away. So there's a sense of what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas, but what happens in Puerto Rico never happens at all. Right. So what, sometimes what seems like an um, uh, anarchistic, terroristic, socialistic, uh, very aberrant, violent behavior happens to be it's the not. only way that you, that you get a moment's attention span on a serious problem. And so there's a, there's, right. there's a real irony in that because but yes. that revolution that, we, that I just mentioned that, uh, that I told you, Michael, about the, the eight towns, the bombing, the two towns and all that, people here in the United States didn't know it. What they did know is what Joe mentioned, that they came up to Blair House and they tried to shoot Truman. So even though that seemed like a – and the, the newspapers all said these guys are terrorists, lunatics, socialists, all, all these things, but what they didn't mention, no newspaper picked up the fact. That those two men, Griselio Torresola and Oscar Collazo, those two men that came to Blair House on that weekend, they were from Hayuya. And Hayuya was the town that the day before, day before these men went to Washington, Hayuya had been bombed and strafed by 10 P-47 Thunderbolt airplanes. The town where these men were born, where their families still lived, their childhood, their memory, their towns were bombed by these 10 P-47 planes. So if, if, the, if violence then is the, key, is the index here of, of who is doing the wrong, well, who's the real terrorist here? Who's creating the greater violence? The, uh, the, the uh, entity that, that bombed their hometown with 10 planes? Or these two, two right. men that do, uh, commit a desperate act and, 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 and they did capture the world's attention? So it's a very sad history, uh, but it's also a very dramatic one. And sometimes the drama is the only way that you know to get people to pay attention. So that's part been part of the of the of the uh, of, of the evolution of the, this hundred year history that uh, Puerto, Puerto Ricans sometimes you just get like these you don't get fifteen minutes of fame you get eight seconds of bullets and then the world forgets about you again. Right. Amazing. Right. Amazing. Uh, Nelson, let and, me and, tell and, you something. Hmm. Let, let me tell you something, Nelson. You're my hero. Hello? You are. You tell it the way it is. Can you hear me, Nelson? You're, you're my hero, yeah. Nelson. Yeah. You, you, I, you tell it the way it is. Uh, you know, I love Puerto Rico. I was born in Puerto Rico. I also love this country, the United States of America. I love it. But it's not a perfect country. It, 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 it's aired in yeah. so many ways. And uh, I, I would like to see Puerto Rico as, as, as a state. Uh, those are my feelings. But the the way you tell the story is the way it really happened. And people may not agree with you, may not agree with me, but those are the facts and you have to accept them. And right. like I said, you, you, 
I thank you for writing this book. You by the way, let me say something before I forget. Uh, one of my uh, partners, uh, Freddie Roman in the Two Five, was also a great partner. Just before I forget, you know, aside, you know, I mentioned my other partners. But listen, I was just digressing there a bit. But I, this book that you've written is a great book. It, it enlightens people as to what went down from the very beginning, from the Spanish-American War to the present. And Correct. a lot of people Correct. don't know that. So I just want to let you know that we are friends. We might agree totally, you know, we have different uh, views on politics, but that's the way the world is. Just like in the United States, we have two parties. Maybe we should have three parties, because if we had one party, it would be a dictatorship. But I'm, well, we I'm, have I'm a lot more parties with, than that, Joe, but, but we have a yeah, couple but of I'm major pro- ones, yeah. <laughs> right. But, but I'm proud to have you as a friend, and, and, and uh, uh, truly, you know, I'm glad you I wrote this book. Thanks, Joe. Go, go ahead, great words, and 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 as someone who has lived those words, you have you put your life on the line to basically defend our our democracy. So when someone like you, who I re- respect a great deal because you put you committed your life to it, means a lot to me. You know, I'm a guy who sits in front of a few behind the computer, and 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 uh, deals with the world. You're a guy who faced the world and you know and put your whole life in front there. To, to keep my neighborhood safe, Joe. So I really appreciate it. In a sense, in a sense, we're you know I, I hope that we're like two parts of the, of the same body because we just believe in, in in right and wrong, and I think that's why we're friends. Right. Yeah. Right. Thank and, you. And, I appreciate. It. I appreciate it. And, and and Nelson, what what do you think has been the the motivating force for you in terms of your passion? on this topic. I mean this this topic is clearly very near and dear to your heart and you're very passionate about it. You know, you wrote this book War Against All Puerto Ricans. Um you you've spoken extensively on it and you've written on it and uh what what has made what what has been the the, the precursor to that passion on it? I I think it's cuz my 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 life has been Never really got very far from from this community. Um, Washington Heights was uh, was Jewish and Irish and and a lot very Puerto Rican for for a long time. My family, I have a lot of family in Puerto Rico. Um, when I read started reading those FBI files, it really tapped into the the, the memories and how how this same so, sort of um, government. Uh, government arrogance can can affect people because I saw how it affected my mother, how how it affected me. So when I started reading the the FBI files, and then when I started when, when Michael when I connected a few dots, and I saw that there's been it, it's been evolving, but it's really the the sort of the, just the same long distance uh, usury that there, that there are people that are taking advantage, and they do this all over the world. But I, and I happen I happen to understand this little corner of the world, so. What I see happening in Puerto Rico right now is connecting to every page that's in my book. So it, you know, I mean, it connects. You know, I, it's, I also had a point in my life when you, you reach a point where you start now putting all these patterns together as you get older. And so, you know, I just, sure. you know, I just see that the, that I just finally see how some things work, and I want to do whatever I can to to share the, this information. And and I don't try to be passionate. It's just like normal. It's just you know certain things that <laughs> right. you know are, are you know so and and Joe's like Nelson can I share Nelson, can I let share me something ask, about Joe let me ask you 
No, wait, go ahead, Joe, Nelson. Go ahead. Here, Michael, so Joe comes yeah, and he, comes, he visits me, and he stays for a few, a few days. And he has his one of his books. I I, I think it was the the blue. Uh, what's which is that one? True blue, blue. True blue. Yeah, true blue. So, true blue. So he has his book. So he goes to the thirty third precinct, and the judge is up there, like three feet over us, and everything. He walks up to them, and he's having a nice discussion. You know, you say I was here, I worked here, and everything. And so the judge says, well, "What brings you? What brings?" And he pulls out true blue. He says. Oh, I just wanted to bring you this book. It's about co- corruption here and police corruption in Washington Heights. <laughs> he sticks it right <laughs> under the target. Yeah, that- and I said, if if I could have that commitment to my work, I'm gonna I'm gonna succeed. So Joe is my inspiration. Right. You know, I, I'm doing you. the same thing. That was red. I, ha- no, I mean, I just, also red herring. That was red herring. Police corruption in Washington Heights. Police corruption in Washington Heights. I'm not as brave. I'm not as brave, man. I don't know if I would. You know. Right. Stare down the rifle barrel and say, "Oh, by the way, here you're a criminal." <laughs> yeah, anyway. and and for those no, listeners that want to go to Joe's website, please go to bluewallnypd.com. That's bluewallnypd.com. Um, I've read all of his books. Um, True Blue is my favorite, um, and uh, and and I, I'm constantly calling Joe and saying, "Hey, Joe." Uh, I, I need to send a gift to someone. Can you please uh, sign a book for me and and send it? And, he, and let me tell you, man, he gets it out in about two yeah. hours. It's in the mail and 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 on its way. Um, Nelson, you also served uh, in the New York State Assembly from 1997 to 2000, representing uh, New York's 68th Assembly District, uh, which includes East Harlem and Spanish Harlem. Um, tell us about your time in, in the New York State Assembly. Well, you know, that actually taps into the question that you, that you asked about why these things, they're with you, why they, they matter, because the, um, the uh, East Harlem, it's known as El Barrio here, here in New York, is also called La Cuna, the, the crib. That was the, the right. first and largest community of Puerto Ricans when they first arrived here in, in New York. And so I was their state assemblyman for, for four years, so I was dealing with a lot of the same the drama and problems and, and, and the injustice and problems with landlords. So it's it's that's just been part of. Um, you know, my, I went to law school, but but I uh, really been doing more community work is the, the way that it feels, and so it was an extension of, of that, uh, doing something in in my community. Um, I'm from Washington Heights, but I just had a, I knew a lot of people in East Harlem, and I so I moved there for a while for about 12 years, and um, and I served and learned a, a good a good amount about state government, um, and uh, I, I, if I had to do it all over again, it's it's certainly interesting to see how government works from the inside. I'll give you one example. Let me get one example in New York State. There's something called the the governor's message of necessity. That was promulgated in 1894 when there might be hurricane, uh, earthquake, natural disasters, but think 1894. So the governor would need to do something quickly, get some legislation out, some emergency relief, but we don't have those needs now. So now the governor's message of necessity is used to circumvent the mandatory 72-hour reading period that the legislators are entitled to, to be able to read a bill, but with a, when it has a message of necessity attached, you only have one hour, one hour, and you have to vote straight up or down. In other words, yes or no. There's no amendments, no floor debate. Not, you either vote yes 
or no. So here's what happens. Lobbyists, they don't want to undergo the public review process. And why should they have to deal and, and schmooze 50 legislators? Heck no. The lobbyists go straight to the governor's office. They message a uh, necessity attached. Then those, the messages come out in the last two weeks of session when the bills are just popping out. You don't have time. And you only have one hour. Now, if you get a bill that's 200 pages long and you think that it's half of it, it's a, say, for, to start a children's uh, a foster care in, in Harlem for half a million dollars, but what you don't realize is on, 100 pay, on page 173, you have a $5 million shrimp farm for Schenectady that you're also voting for, and you don't know it. Right. You only have one hour, and you can't read the bill. During the, my time that I was there, close to 20% of the New York state budget which is currently about 170 billion. So back then it was about 150. So about roughly 30 billion dollars worth of state spending was done under messages of necessity, where the legislators didn't know what they were voting for. So you know that that for me was kind of eye-opening. That you know how uh, that and I'll give you I'll give you one other the public service commissions that there's a lot of this happens in all 50 states by the way. Um, a lot of right. governors, especially in election year, they want to be popular. They want to, you know, they want to be Santa Claus, but they, but they also want to be supposedly very budget conscious. They have a balanced budget. So what they do is they will issue municipal bonds like the ones that Puerto Rico was forced to take. So you see where all these things start to connect. They, they, they issue municipal bonds uh, for public, but they do it for public authorities like uh, electricity, right. water, highways in, in, in rural districts. And, and that way they defray the expense. The taxpayer doesn't know they're paying for it because it doesn't go into that year's budget. Those bonds are paid off, say, right. over the next 10 or 20 years. So it becomes a hidden tax, and it keeps going up every year because they keep adding on these municipal bonds. So I realize that there's about 80 um, public service commissions th- throughout New York State that are largely fun- funded by municipal bonds that we don't hear about. So between the municipal bonds and the message of necessity and the fact that 40% of our New York state budget is Medicare and Medicaid. When you add all those wow. three up, Medicare and Medicaid, the message of necessity, and the public service commissions, you see that a lot of money is flying through Albany, and it's, and, and it's a little bit out of control. So I, you know, I right. thought I'd share that with you. Do you yeah, plan to run for a councilman seat? Nelson, you plan to run? Yeah. You told me you were going to run. Um, I'm I'm just it's being discussed Joe it's uh, it's a a real possibility Um, and I would love to break the news on this show that would be great but I'm not we haven't made when I say we it's because it's a few people besides me that that would be a part of it I hope you do run I hope you do run run. thanks yeah and and definitely keep us posted on that because that, that that actually Joe Joe beat me to it because I was going to ask you if uh, if there was uh, thoughts about you know continuing in public service and running you know for, yeah, for some kind could, of elected office. Could, yeah, if I had a choice to be just perfectly honest, if I could, uh, like Joe, you know, he works really hard at, with his books um, to get them out there. If 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 I knew that I could publish and, and you know, write something else and get it out, uh, I would prefer doing that, uh, I think, uh, if, if, if it's a choice. Um, but we'll see. We'll, we'll see where, where it comes. The seat, if I would run, would be for Melissa Mark Tiberito. She's uh, the Speaker of the City Council, but she's term limited, so it would be an open seat this coming year. So oh, okay. um, I'll, I will, okay. I'll keep you posted. 
Yeah. Yes. Uh, Nelson. Do. Nelson. Do. Nelson. Yeah. Nelson. Yeah. Don't get me started on her. We'll talk about that on another day. And one, yeah, yeah. One last, another thing. You wrote an article after centuries of uh, after century of American citizenship. Puerto Ricans have little to show for it. You you just wrote it uh, what March second? Yeah, it came out because March second is the hundredth anniversary. Right. Okay. Okay. Right. It's a good article. Yeah. 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 It, it is, and it's. I, I, it's quite I, expensive. I have to do it in a quite heat. expensive. Yeah. Yeah. Well, they, they did it in a in, they just, Nelson, can you do this? And I, you know, I, I did it. You know me, Joe. I don't get any sleep. What can, what can you do? Mm-hmm. Right. And 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 I know poor poor uh, 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 Nelson. Uh, I know Joe has been bugging you about being on on this show. So uh, I know that. Oh, this uh, was a pleasure. This, guys, I really, no, I, I, that. you know, I, no, he, I didn't have to bug him. He jumped on it. He says, "Sure, why not?" Yeah, that's great. Why not? That's, because also, because I, I realize what we're doing. We're, we're going a, a long distance. Your, your show. Where, uh, Michael? Where are you located? I'm, in, I'm in South Florida. So this to me is, you know, I'm talking to, you know, down there, and I know that there's a large Latino community, that, you know, definitely in South Correct. Florida. So this is a you know this is a way to to share, and um, I, I think this is great. And it was you know as a true friend, I appreciated what Joe did. So uh, I really thank you. And I you know you guys gave me all this time. No, it's great, it and, it, and it's going to be on the it's it's going to be on the internet. Anybody can click on it later. Anybody can uh, listen to the show Absolutely. later on. Absolutely. Their own convenience. Yes. If, mm-hmm. if I could if I could leave a message, it's to, to folks is if once they they hear this, if they can maybe just either share this information or have a dialogue or talk to uh, someone that if they're Puerto Rican themselves to talk, you know, to some of of their countrymen and say, what can I do? How how can I help? In other words, to to not just have it be information, but to have it be uh, a motivator uh, to to try to get things to happen. Because I think that things are going to be happening quickly in Puerto Rico over the next five years. And so this is really a time to take information like this, and to really and to turn it into something, to to do something. So if I could just urge people to do that, to to get interested. Um, I, I'll, this isn't a plug, but uh, I have a website called WarAgainstPuertoRicans.com, and they can see a lot of this information as as well. Um, but just to to share it, to get it out. Well, get, get, give Puerto us, Rico get, very give much. Us, is give it, us it, the website. Yeah, so get, give called, us the website my, again, Nelson. It's okay to plug. It's it, you can do that. No right. problem. So the book is War Against All Puerto Ricans, and the website is waragainstallpuertoricans.com. Okay. And it has a lot of photographs, and it's pretty lively. And it, it covers a, a lot of the areas of the book, but it also updates with the blog. We've, I, I'm proud of this. We've gotten over 4 million hits in the last year and a half, 4 million views on this website. So clearly That's phenomenal. are listening. Yeah. Yeah, oh, and, the one, and, the nation? and if anyone wants to read the article, it's it's, it's at thenation.com, and you can also go to uh, Nelson's Twitter page, and uh, and the article link is right there, uh, so that'll also take you uh, to the article, uh, which I think is 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 excellent. Um, and so um, I'm really there's a, there's a there's a page on Facebook, Mike, it's called War Against All Puerto Ricans. And that one's really effective because in the last day, this article just came out uh, two, two and a half days ago, and we've gotten over 130,000 views 
in just these three days through the face war no, on Facebook. No, yeah. sir. Can I can can I make a point here? Uh, I just want sure. to tell the audience that you 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 you, you didn't call your book uh, "War Against All Puerto Rican." You didn't come up with that. It was oh, uh, Colonel Francis. The original title was going to be King, that I wanted was King of the Towels, because that was Albizu Campos who would wrap his head in cold towels to protect himself from the radiation. But the publisher said, right. oh, that's, it, it, can you come up with something else? I said, okay. And it's, I, I let them, you know, when they, when they didn't bite on that one, I said, oh, then take this one, mother. <laughs> and I gave them war against all Puerto Ricans. <laughs> right, they, but you took that. It. It, was, it was Colonel Francis E. Riggs. Who made that statement? Yeah, E. Francis, E. Francis Riggs. And one thing on the book, I'll say, I tried to write two books. The the book proper, the it's very narrative, and it, it re, I tried to read it. It reads like a novel. But then the second part of the book is over 700 footnotes, so that so that whenever there's a, a significant controversy or a data point like the war against all Puerto Ricans, I have multiple citations. I think six footnotes with regard with regard to that. Well, because I understood that this this controversy in this book, so I tried to make it a book that you know that readers would say, "Wow, did you?" But also on a very serious scholarly level to to back it up with with information. So that's why I have over seven hundred footnotes. Wow, that's phenomenal, and and definitely uh, for those listening, uh, definitely check out the Facebook page "War Against All Puerto Ricans." Uh, it, it's a it's a pretty active page as well. Very active, Mike. I thank you. Thank you for you know for bringing this uh, bringing this to the attention of your very large audience. And um, I know that people in Florida they they share a lot. They talk a lot. Um, you, you, do you guys read? Do you ever guys ever read any of the John McDonald, the Travis Travis McGee books? No, I, I have not. I can't say that I, I have. have Go ahead. It, Okay, oh, Joe, I know you would appreciate it. He was a detective, he, um, and um, he lived on a houseboat in South Florida near Fort Lauderdale. This is a, a fictional, but it's like 40 okay. novels by a guy named John John D. McDonald. And the, what he painted, he liked Carl Hyacinth, but more sort of like the original Carl Hyacinth. And the view that mm-hmm. I got, and I'm an outsider, but the view that I have is that people talk, that people share. Uh, it, it's, you know, it's kind of got a, a little bit of a Caribbean feel. So I have a feeling that your show, that your radio, that this podcast, you know, whatever it's called, the blog blog radio, that it is very influential, Mike. So I want to really keep you. Uh, hope that you feel inspired, but I, because I bet you're doing this is great work, and I bet you that that a lot of people talk about this show in Florida. I get that. No, no, well, thank, thank fact, you. No, and, no. And, and, and actually, we we, we, ha- we do have listeners outside of Florida. Uh, yes. Quite a bit. Yes. I, I, I actually want to say hello to Mario, who's listening in Massachusetts. Uh, Corey, who's also listening, and uh, and Ariella, I want to say hello to them as well. Give them a little quick shout out. <laughs> yes. Go ahead, yes. Joey. And you, listen, Mimi Lozada, who is the uh, editor of Somos Primos. Okay, I got my good friend Oscar also, who's always listening. Uh, there are so many people in New York that listen. Even though they don't call, they listen because they will send me an email and tell me, great show, enjoy enjoy listening to your show. And they they, they also want to thank Michael Calderin, Calderin for coming up with the show. I'm just his host. 
I'm just the guy that lays back, listens, and I try to supply <laughs> the ammunition. That's it. Uh-huh. I'm not as articulate. No, I'm not as well-spoken as Michael is. But sure you are. I sure am you good are. with my fingers. When I have to touch something and say something, I write it, and I let it flow. Oh, well, we know, Joe. Yeah. Uh, uh, both, both Nelson and I are on your email list. We know. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I don't know if I want to be on uh, Joe's radar or not. <laughs> that's no, not, they're you, being... wanna, you, you know what it is? You want to be on his good radar, not his bad radar. That's it. Yeah, man. Well, up with Joe, know. I hope I see you uh, when you come back up to New York. Well, eventually I will. And like I said, the, the, yeah. and I'll mention this again, there's a uh, documentary coming out in April about the uh, creation of the Lincoln Center, the 50th anniversary. I uh, I was invited back in uh, December 15th and 16th. They paid all my expenses. I went, I was interviewed, filmed. So uh, as soon as that comes out, I'll let everybody else know. And if I can get go, go to New York, and uh, I'll definitely stop by. We'll get together. You're a good okay. guy. I appreciate your, yeah, I appreciate N- your, N- I appreciate N- your friendship. N- N- Nelson, I want to ask you another question because, um, you know, you you were born and raised in Washington Heights. Uh, you currently live mm-hmm. actually two blocks two blocks away from from where I used to live. Or at least my last apartment before leaving. Um, Washington Heights, and uh, you know, again, we we've I, I know we've all known people that that died in Washington Heights for various reasons, uh, not always the best ones. And uh, what would you what would you say to a young adolescent or teen growing up now in Washington Heights or anywhere else for that matter? Uh, what kind of advice would you want to give them? Uh, because, you know, you, you grew up in a tough area like the rest of us, and, you know, uh, you have you have been uh, quite accomplished. Um, I read your bio at the beginning of the show. I'm not going to read it again because we don't have that much time. Uh, but it's an extensive one in terms of all your accomplishments and everything you've done. So what would be that advice uh, that you would give to to someone who's who's younger and and starting out in the world, if you will. And I know it's a tough I would say question. That, uh, I would say that, um, and I think that Michael, you'll you'll remember this. Uh, what places like this, all over the country, there used to be more of a feeling of community. Um, oh, they were taking a village to raise a child. Well, you would have to actually have that village. People would leave their doors open, and they could. People knew each other. They had, they knew to beat cop. Um, it was a more personal environment, and all this technology that we have is supposed to bring us together. I don't I don't think it is. So the advice I would give is to, um, to learn how to good information and think for themselves. Because one thing I've noticed is uh, increasingly um, people are sort of packaged. They're 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 marketed. Uh, they're, they 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 receive brands instead instead of a thought. They receive they receive a, a a module and it's and it's a brand and and then you don't think anymore. People don't read. So what I would do uh, encourage the young people is to do what it t- takes so, so that you can develop your own point of view. Make sure that it's your po- point of view and that you have the anal- analytical uh, analytical ability to analyze to think y- y- with your own mind. And so 
I would suggest a kid in my neighborhood, I would say, turn off your cell phone and your Twitter and everything and take a walk down by the Hudson River. And look across the right. river. And just think right. and reflect and just be willing to be alone because in that aloneness, you, find, you can find deeper layers and encounter those layers of yourself. So be willing to take those little trips by yourself. Maybe it's only 15 minutes a day, but become an individual. Right. And then, and then that way you can have a more fulfilling life. Right. That's what I would say. That, that, that's wonderful. I mean, you know, and, and it's, it's, it's ironic that you say that because last weekend uh, I walked into an Italian gelato place in my, in my neighborhood, and I wanted to get some espresso, and I was with my family. And I sat down at the table, and um, the sign on the table, there's a sign on each of the tables, and it said the following, we don't have Wi-Fi, please sit and talk to each other. <laughs> Wise words. Mm-hmm. Huh? And, and mm-hmm. that sign, I mean, that was wow, you know, because in today's day and age, the technology has taken us away, you know, and, and younger people uh, struggle with social skills. Because yeah. you know everything is done electronically, you know they'll be in the next room and they're texting you, you know. So yeah. you know one one thing I do if if my kids don't answer, I I I can shut off my Wi-Fi, and if I shut off mm-hmm. my Wi-Fi, they'll they'll be in my room in about thirty seconds. <laughs> right, right, especially. Yeah, especially if they need something, right? Because they, 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 right. they can't phone it in. Daddy is not a Chinese That's menu. Right. He's a human being. <laughs> That's right. That's right. You shut down the Wi-Fi, and that, that'll get the attention you need. <laughs> yeah. We think alike, man. But, you know. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, guys, I, well, I enjoyed uh, this a lot. and, and um, Huh? I'm sorry, Joe? Oh, it, it, it was great. Can, can I plug a, man, a friend's book? His name is Oscar S. Ramirez. Mexican American. He wrote El Camino to Jarez, to uh, Jarales, Purgatorial Conversation with Don Manuel. I just wanted to plug his book. What's oh, it about? He listens in. Well, okay. it's more or less hit, hit the, the, the Sanchez family, not my Sanchez family. It's upbringing, and it goes up to from he, when he was a child all the way up where he meets this fellow that had already passed, and they have this conversation in a chapel, and they go back into time in regards to his family. I read it. It's a good book, and I just wanted to give him a, a plug. His name is Oscar S. Ramirez. Okay, so, wonderful. Anything I can do for anybody out there with a book, I'll plug your book. Just like I'm plugging wonderful. your book, Nelson. You have a great book. Thank you. And I thank you, and I thank I you for writing it. it. Yeah, and, and, Amen, and it, is, it, is, it is on the Amazon, Amazon bestseller list, <clears throat> and uh, I, just ordered, I just ordered my copy. So I'm, I'm going to ask Nelson to send me a, a nice handwritten note so I can put it in the book there, and and oh, have it. Sure. Uh, okay. So I, I appreciate that. Yeah, yeah. I'll email you my info. Fantastic. Okay. Uh, and, and sure. And I'm once again, to. we we really appreciate you uh, coming on the show, and uh, spending spending quite a bit of time with us. We're we're almost at uh, at 90 minutes. Um, wow, that's pretty good. Yeah. It, well, it, I, it went I by, hope the listeners it went by enjoyed very it. fast. I hope. Yes, 
I hope the listeners enjoyed Absolutely. it. Absolutely. You know, we get carried Absolutely. away. No, no, no. I've been, I've, they are. No, I, I've been, I've been getting messages throughout the show, uh, on on email. I got one for the uh, uh, John Villanueva, retired cop, uh, 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 who lives in uh, the West Coast, uh, Port Richie. He emailed me. He, he says, "Hey, good show, good show." Right. 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 Well, yeah, no, I, and I I've been getting messages on on Twitter, on Facebook, you know, all the all the electronic uh, communication that, methods that, that that we were just talking about, you know. Uh, hey, uh, I'm talking to you from a flip phone, I, 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 so I'm a man of principle. Oh, 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 a flip phone. Whoa. Uh, I stick by my gun. <laughs> I stick. I, I, you know, and no do, one do you can still, take it away from me. Still, that, that should be a, that should be the Nineteenth Amendment, huh? Right. <laughs> do you still? Uh, do you still uh, wear a, a beeper, or just no, a flip phone? No, I, <laughs> I think that one got in Washington, a couple hey, of years ago. In Washington Heights, I, I in Washington, in Washington Heights, whenever we saw someone with a beeper, we knew what they were doing. That's Back right. Back in my yeah. days, That's, you know, and no, they you, weren't you, the good guys you, either. Obviously, you you know, I'm sorry if you profiled your people there because apparently you didn't assume that they were medical students at, at Columbia Presbyterian. At Columbia Presbyterian. No, that's, no, that's no, what no. I was thinking. Exactly. <laughs> no. Exactly. No, yeah. These, these were more. Yeah, Joe. These were more closer to a. These were more closer to 163rd Street, the meanest block oh. in, in Washington Heights. You know. Okay. Okay. Well, that explains so, everything. Yeah, then. Absolutely. <laughs> no, that's what I'm. That's that's what I'm talking about. Nowadays, yeah. it's just one phone call with the, with their cell, and hey, agua, agua. That's what the Dominicans would call right. la cop. Agua, agua. Agua, yeah. But well, Puerto agua. Ricans used so like to I, say that too in Spanish Harlem, agua. Really? No, no. The, the Puerto Ricans yeah. say la jara, la jara. La jara, here no, comes O'Hara. Here comes yeah, O'Hara. O'Hara, too. la jara. Yeah. <laughs> I, I thought it was, <laughs> no, hola. Ahí viene Joe. <laughs> oh, oh, with Joe? Oh, oh no. What? Nah. Yeah. Oh, corre. No, they corre, used to say, no, what they used to, no, they used to say, here comes, no, seriously, here comes Super Cop. There he comes. Yeah, right. Yeah, I remember but you put that book. That was it. Yeah, man. Yeah. <laughs> well, well, Super Cop, apparently the, 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 your, the NYPD appreciates your service and your superness, and they gave you a, go- a girl, a gold watch, and everything, didn't they? They, they, yeah, I, yeah, sure they did. Sure they did. Sure they did. But oh but God. I'll always say this. That's another. The NYPD. No, no. I'll, I'll leave you with this. I was proud to be a Port Authority police officer. I learned a lot. I was. I learned a lot as a correction officer working in Sing Sing after I was a cop back in '89 in a Kasaki State Prison. But the NYPD was about the best job I ever had. I learned so much, and I love serving and protecting. And my reward was when a victim would come over to me and say, thank you for being there. That was my reward. It was us. I, I would get a high just hearing that. So the wow. NYPD yeah. taught me a lot. And, it, and, and I, I have respect for the cops that do right and serve and protect. So uh, when it comes to the NYPD, it was the best job I ever had. I'll never deny that. Right, right. That's nice to hear. I also want to. I, I, I want to. I, I want to give a quick shout out to my friend Dave, who's listening to us uh, from the Great Lakes out in Michigan. So just a quick shout out to him as well. Um, you know, I, I love getting messages from people uh, who who are tuned in, and and uh, you know, it, it's always nice, particularly when when you when you know. Uh, That's right. 
you know when you know them. That's right. So and we, we yeah, definitely one more appreciate thing. the support. Yeah. Okay. One one more thing. I want to thank all those former cops and cops still on the job that support me. Those ones that get back to me via email. Some don't even bother to get back to me. I don't know what it is, but the majority of cops that I know will get back to me. I have more friends now than I ever had when I was a cop. And there's so many good people that I truly appreciate. Those that don't get back to me, they have their own reason. But I thank those that do and have supported me, have been supporting me throughout the years. Thank you and God you know what? bless that is you Joe. Joe, Joe, I'll leave what you with it? this. That is your karma because that's also a reflection of what you have been and the kind of person that you've been, the friendship that you, you've extended. Right. So you're getting back what you put out into the world. And so um, those, you've earned all those friendships, Joe. Yeah. Thank, thank you. Oh, I appreciate guys, it. I'm going to run have... off. If it's okay. Okay. Yes. Uh, go ahead. Go ahead. So Listen, thank you for being. And, and, and I look forward to being with back on the show anytime. Uh, okay, we'll do it again. And I, I look forward to talking to you guys. And now I have one new friend, Michael. It was, it was great to, to yes. great to, to just get, to meet you through Joe. Joe, he always does that. Thank you very much. Yes, thank you. Thank you, thank you thank so you. much. Thank you, my brother. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, guys. Joe, hablamos pronto. Okay, hablamos pronto. So, Mike, it was a, it was a good conversation with Nelson. Great. Yes. Yes, yes. And, Great. Uh, I mean, he's a good and, and friend. And we're coming up on uh, on the end on the end of the show. We're uh, okay. Hey, it, it went by fast, Joe. And and I, hey, I want to thank everybody that listened in, and those that have emailed me back or whatever, you know, telling me, hey, great show. And those that don't, I right. know they enjoy the show. Right. Bye. Take care. All right. Well, thank you so much for tuning in. And uh, we hope you'll tune in next time. Thank you again. And you've been listening to The Michael Calderon Show. Amen. God bless.